Welcome to Investment Magazine's ongoing podcast series, The Future of Super. These podcasts are an in-depth series of conversations with key decision makers, leaders and industry stakeholders at a time when the maturing industry is challenged to provide retirement solutions for older Australians, as well as continuing the work of building assets for those still in the workforce. We explore critical topics for executives responsible for governance, for operations and outcomes, addressing vital issues relevant to the future of Australia's retirement and savings system. Please visit investmentmagazine.com.au or get in touch to continue the conversation. And now, please enjoy the episode. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with AIA Australia, a leading life and wellbeing specialist with 50 years experience and a commitment to help Australians live healthier, longer, better lives. Hello and welcome to the fourth in the series of the Future of Super podcast for 2022. Today we're talking to Emily Barnes and Andrew Inwood. Emily Barnes is Head of Insights and Design at Equip Super. Her background is as design strategist and marketing leader with more than 15 years financial services experience. Her role is to help businesses understand what their customers need through designing products, services and processes to meet those needs. As a leader, trainer and facilitator, she makes sure to engage teams to be committed to new ways of thinking and doing. Focusing on motivation, seeking to understand customer needs and action triggers has helped her deliver insight-driven industry innovations like Russell Investments' award-winning to-do list and superannuation mobile app. At Equip, she has been responsible with communication around mergers through design thinking, ethnographic research, human-centred design and customer experiences. Andrew Inwood is Global Head and Founder of Core Data, with more than 30 years experience in the Australian financial services industry. He started his career at Rothschild Australia Asset Management, where he headed the marketing team, before moving to AMP Investments, where he spent over a decade. From AMP, he was seconded to Virgin Direct in the UK to help establish the finance and investment arm of the group, and he returned to Australia to be Marketing Director of Wizard Home Loans. From Wizard, he moved to Telstra, where he spent three years as General Manager of Applications and Hosted Services, before leaving to start Core Data. In the past 10 years, Core Data has expanded from Sydney to have offices in Perth, London, Boston and Manila. Andrew is also the author of more than 50 pieces of significant research into clients and their behaviour and has a particular focus on the value of the client experience in financial services. Today's topic is member engagement and we're privileged to be with two people with such great experience on the topic. Member engagement is an area of vital importance in the competitive super landscape. Welcome to today's podcast. Andrew, can you start by giving me a brief introduction to yourself and Core Data? So Core Data is a, um, a research company, a research and consulting business, which is um, based in in Sydney, Perth, Boston, London, Manila, and a couple of other small offices around the world. We're really interested in the customer outcomes in financial services. So if you think about research in financial services in two in three buckets, you've got um, the kind of operational buckets, and that's a very interesting part of what's going on. You've got the kind of technical and performance buckets and that's always really important and then there's the member outcomes bucket which is the bit that I'm most fascinated about. My background is as an economist and we've got a lot of economists working for us but we're really focused on those behavioural points and the and the and the kind of outcomes for that. So we think that's the most interesting and, and probably the most important part of financial services, the member experiences and the member outcomes. And Emily, your head of insights and design at Equip Super, which is quite a specialised role. Can you really tell us what you do and how it fits into Equip Super and member engagement? Thanks, Julia. Sure can. Uh, My job, to put it simply, is really to put the member at the heart of everything we do um, by helping my colleagues understand our members. So what they've done, what they might do next and what keeps them up at night. 
So I do that by leading a team that encompasses data analytics, research, regulatory reporting and human-centred design. Um, so the insights produced by my team are used by the business to define our strategy and ensure that our member experience, engagement activity and member outcomes are all grounded in the deep knowledge of our members and what they need from us. And how long have that role been existing in Equip Super? About three years. It was formalised upon our joint venture with Catholic Super, which happened uh, late 2019, early 2020, peak COVID times. Um, so that was an interesting uh, experience for us to all go through together. But uh, the board, the executive really recognised that member engagement is the battleground for super funds in the future. There's so much consolidation happening, um, obviously regulatory pressure to um, reduce the number of participants in the market to increase scale and improve member outcomes. And an understanding that um, product investment performance, a lot of other factors that differentiate funds today, uh, they're not going to be a thing in the future because everyone's being... Um, encouraged to meet certain performance standards. So what are we left with? We're left with the member experience and member engagement. And to be able to do that properly, you need to have a really deep and close understanding of who your members are. Thank you. So Andrew, looking at the research that you've been doing, why is member engagement so important to super funds? I know what Emily's just said, but have you seen any other reasons why it might be more important now than in previous years? So in the past, one of the things that, that, that funds have been concentrating on, and this is not quick necessarily, but a, a great number of other funds have been focused only on two types of communication with their member. One is about price, how much they cost, and we've been educated that price is the best integer of understanding the value or the utility of a fund. And the other one is about performance, which is, you know, so how well the fund has returned um, relative to um, relative to the market. In fact, it hasn't even really focused on relative to the market. It's just been focusing on absolute numbers. So people are aware of, of what the absolute return is and what the absolute uh, absolute cost is. And we think those numbers are very interesting, but they're not the only things that members should be focused on. Members should be very focused on what the experience of being part of the fund is. Let me talk about why this is really interesting now. Um, for the last... 20 years or even 30 years, since really since the late 1980s, Australia has been in the phase of accumulating funds inside superannuation. So it's been a very fast-growing group as people have mandated growth and, and the baby boomers have been in the last sort of three decades of their working life. We're now going to move from that to a decumulation phase where the people are turning 60 and starting to think about pulling their money out of superannuation. The act of accumulating money is almost entirely homogenous. It's put it in, get the communication right and make it cheap and simple. The act of retiring is heterogeneous. It's absolutely individual. So the things which are going to satisfy members are going to shift fundamentally away from numbers, which are um, what is the cost and what's the return, to actually my personal experience of this process. And a lot of funds aren't really set up for that. They're actually set up only to accumulate, not to manage people through that process. It could a little bit different, but I'll let Emily talk about that because they've got a kind of more mature member base inside there, particularly the equip business, and they've had to, had to deal with that for some time. Emily, would you like to explain it? Yeah. Um we have uh, an older demographic than a lot of our competitive funds. So our average member age is 48 um, and around about a third of our current member base today will retire in the next 10 years. So when you look at our demographics from that perspective, um, it's really important that we understand the relationship that our members have to superannuation, to retirement, how their life is going to change um, as they pass through um, these life stages and how we can support them on that journey. Obviously, as a, a fund that is a profit-to-member fund, we think we have very strong history of performance. We're very comfortable that our fees are competitive. We think that we're one of the best places for our members to stay as they move from um, accumulation into the deep accumulation phase. But not all of our members choose to do that. There is a gap between uh, awareness of products and services and also uh, who people are listening to when they hit that moment of truth and then move into retirement. We want to be leading that conversation so that our members have all of the information they know, they need to know at the time where they're making a decision so they can make decisions in their best interest of their own retirement outcomes. If that isn't to stay with us, 
we're good with that, but we want to make sure that uh, our members are approaching those milestones with everything they need to be looking after themselves. Uh, some of the research we've done with Core Data in the past has told us that members age 50 and older, even within our funds and even with all of the work we do, still don't have an understanding of the tax benefits available in the pension phase. They don't understand the product optionality available to them. They don't understand that the day they retire is not the day that their balance is at its maximum. They think it's kind of like a bank account. You start drawing down from day one in retirement and you just chip away at your balance. They don't quite grasp that they can continue to keep that money invested in retirement. It can grow over time and your annual drawdown, if you you know, sort of tweak it right, doesn't really eat away at your total retirement savings. I should, I should interject there too, Emily. I mean, I'm not being rude about other funds, but your cohort, particularly in Equip, tend to be more educated, tend to be much more numerate yeah. and have a deeper understanding. So the, what we're seeing in Equip is a more numerate, slightly older, well-educated, entrenched workforce still with a relatively weak understanding yes. of how they can best execute. So if you play that out across other other funds, then that becomes much more exacerbated. Emily, I'm not talking for you, but do you want to talk about the challenges of dealing with the three different funds that you have? Because you've got three different cohorts who behave very differently inside that, so three different big challenges. Yeah, we sure do. Um, we've got a, obviously through the joint venture with Catholic Super in late 2019, we do have some very uh, disparate groups within that overall fund demographic. We have, for example, um, Catholic Super and Equip Super are the two main um, groups of members we have. Um, Equip Super is predominantly male and they have quite high balances and high salaries. On the flip side, Catholic Super members are predominantly female and have worked in caring industries, so education and Catholic healthcare. So when we're trying to communicate and build awareness of those strategies to people who are about to enter the decumulation phase, we're having to approach that very differently. And the work we do um, to understand our members is really imperative to that. Having this human-centred design experience model helps us figure out how we talk to a 65-year-old Catholic super employee who's been an administrator in a Catholic primary school for their whole career and is approaching this huge milestone without a sense of comfort and control versus an engineer on the equip side who might be incredibly financially literate and is wanting us to validate his own thinking and planning around a retirement pension strategy. So, Emily, when do you find that, uh, that are the times that funds need to communicate most and best with the members? I think there's a couple, Julia. So the first one I'd say is when the member needs us for something. Um, so we need to be there and we need to be ready and responsive and make it incredibly easy for us to deal with that member when they need to. The other one I would say is when there's some kind of trigger event in the member's life. So that might be something like job change. That might be hitting a retirement milestone or it might be something like a period of ill health. So making sure that a fund is aware of those milestones when they're happening is incredibly important, but I'm sure all of us today understand that it's really difficult for funds to anticipate those events and be there proactively to support members before it happens. And that's why um, Equip has invested in a data analytics capability because we've got a data scientist in our team who can build propensity models based on the way people have behaved in the past to help us know when someone is about um based on past data, is likely to be changing roles so we can have the conversation with them and arm them with the information they need to know before they need to know it. Um, and when it comes to retirement, what sort of age do the members start to think about it and start to ask questions of the fund? Yeah, that's a really great question. It does vary a lot depending on um, the circumstances of our members. Gender is also pretty interesting as a driver around preparedness for retirement. It's loosely between age 45 and 50. So there is a point at which super becomes um, a much less distant and abstract proposition for our members. Um, people are paying more attention to their statements they may be checking their investment strategy and thinking about the day they can start to access this money. Um, we have to try and balance the challenge between um, making sure that engagement is 
created and nurtured and that our members know everything they need to know and they're feeling confident about the role we're playing in protecting and growing their savings, but not triggering engagement that is going to be detrimental to the members' outcomes. So things like switching behaviour or trying to time the market with investment performance is something that, you know, you might look on paper to be a signal of engagement, but it's actually not promoting the best interests of the member if we're encouraging members to use the product in a way that it's not designed for. And is there a balance that people um, feel like that's when it becomes interesting for them to start engaging more with their super? Yeah, I think um, the day they can start to understand um, the role that super plays in their life after work. So supporting our members by helping them envision what that life after work looks like can help build engagement and interest um, enough for them to start understanding what their options are, how to structure their post-work income and the role that we can play in supporting that. So, Andrew, through your research, at what times do you find that funds need to communicate most and best with their members? It's a quite a flexible number. Um, there is some really compelling evidence that uh, as people to enter into their early 50s, they start to become aware and thinking about environments. So 45 is probably a good number, and I, I certainly wouldn't criticise Emily because it changes with gender, it changes with economic circumstances, and it changes with health circumstances. Remember that most people in, retire, in, in Australia retire and not of their own volition. They're either forced out of work through health or particularly work through workplace changes, and that's the most common reason that people are leaving the, the, leaving the workplace and it's often around 57 there's a fundamental change in the employer relationship so there's a couple of critical integers in this what if you start to say well i'm going to start paying attention and, and change the communication from let's say 52 or 53 and then keep running that change in communication to mid 60s because that's the time where people are paying the most attention to their superannuation it's about the five years prior to retirement, as, as Emily described, people are starting to think about how they're going to use it, what they're going to do, what their life experience is going to be like. And the five years post-retirement, they're very engaged in it, and then people settle down into a rhythm of understanding what's going on. If you look at what the government's thinking about in the retirement income covenant, they're really starting to think about the way in which superannuation is going to be providing for people in retirement. But superannuation funds are going to have to twist and morph from businesses which are designed to accumulate funds as cheaply as possible and manage them as well as possible to ones which are also incredibly good at people helping people through that transition. It's a kind of curious place for um, um, for the businesses to be in and for, for them to be really excellent. They've got to do the things that Emily was talking about, which is having human-centred design, so putting the member at the centre of the experience. And they've got to do the work which is about making sure that people can understand what's going on be engaged and keep and keep and keep up with it. Most people resist this conversation about money because they find it slightly traumatic because either they don't have enough or they think we're going to make a mistake or they or, or, or they have made mistakes in the past. So getting into that's going to be be really important. The role of the superannuation fund in that is something which is open for discussion. Maybe the role is just to manage the funds and leave it up to the humans. I, I tend to think that's not true, but um, it's going to be an interesting interesting time for Australia in the next decade. I'm just back from the sense that like I'm boasting, I'm not trying to boast from the Baltic states, and um, that's um, Sweden and Denmark. As you know, they live in a 0.1 world, so they only charge incredibly low fees for everything, but it means the services pretty slim because they can't afford to provide the services. So there's the trade-off that the funds are always in. They're always trying to think about where is the revenue that we're getting best spent? Is it by investing more in superannuation systems? Is it by making better investment choices and, and investing more in those teams? Or is it also just putting better services into managing people? And the data we have on that is is pretty compelling. People, as they're older, really want better service and uh, they're prepared to pay for it. And that's quite interesting. I know Emily said um, earlier that when members want to contact the fund, they want to get the answers that they want quickly. What have you found in your research on that? Like, when is it that members really want to have the best communication with their funds? Well, Emily's exactly right. I mean, it's a punctuated relationship. It's a need-based relationship. Most of all, it kind of acts in the background and people aren't that engaged. When there are needs-based relationship, they want the fund to be on song and, and going through it. Um, 
Well, we've recently done a bunch of research about critical times communication and looked at um, how funds are performing at those critical time communications. Um, started off as a small piece of research, expanded to a large piece of research. We're not sure what to do with it. Uh, we did it as something that we commissioned ourselves because we thought it was really interesting. There's a couple of really interesting inches in that small funds tend to outperform large funds fundamentally. They're better at answering the phone. They're better at actually getting things getting things done, and they're better at at, at, at operating at operating through those those processes because it appears that people within the fund feel a great deal of ownership for the outcome of what's going on. There's also a correlation between um, the funds which have got poorer systems and who their administrators are. I'm not going to get into it right now, but there is a correlation between one particular administrator and relatively poor outcomes because they don't seem to have their hands on the data on the way in which people might want them to do. And the other thing is that retail funds and bless them for, for their future, um, uh, have a better performance outcome than some of the large industry funds which are hamstrung by the systems they're in. In the past, this hasn't been a particularly big need. We think this need's going to accelerate. No one's really thinking about it or measuring it. We chose to do it because no one's thinking about it or measuring it. Um, it was triggered by a life event inside my family. My father passed in June last year. He had multiple superannuation funds. I was the executor, so I had to go around and, and put them all together and get it organised, communicate it with the family. And the variation in performance was so stunning that I came back to the team and said, hey, we really need to understand this because this is a mess. I've had my own experiences in that, trying to call different funds to um, make transactions and there is a wide difference. So I can understand that you would have done that research. Yeah, four different funds, four very different experiences, two fantastic, one okay and one still gobbling on a year later because they've Oh, we need this form, we need that form. And I know the legislation and it's not true. So I don't know what's going on. To build on Andrew's experience there, one of the things that Equip Super feels like we can really offer to our members and to the market is that as a mid-sized fund um, who is big enough to compete in the world of tomorrow but small enough to actually be nimble and invest in services that are going to help us build relationships with our members. So we can offer that personal touch. We can send somebody out to a work site to run a seminar program and meet one-on-one -on -one with people in a break room. We can uh, run an outbound phone team who gets a list of people who need our support with the next best action for them. So we're really focused on making sure that we um, enact a member engagement strategy that uses digital technology and um, all of our marketing smarts at this uh, pointy, sorry, at the broad end of the funnel so that what we're doing is pointing members who really need our help to our more personal service channels. And by doing that, we are able to make sure that when someone has an insurance claim, for example, they're picking up the phone and talking to someone who knows the product, who can help them and who's really informed and educated about what the next step in the process is and owning that next step so that our members don't have to do the heavy lifting when they're under pressure or stress in their life. Yeah, while we're talking, Emily, I'll pull up the data from this research. Your top core told both pre-retirement and post-retirement you know, within the top five from both of those. And there's it's pretty compressed at the top end. Um, looking at some of the quotes, um, some of your competitors, the service people are saying, I'm not really sure about insurance. I've only been working here for five days. And, that, you know, that's what no one ever wants to hear um, when they're calling up to say, hey, my husband's injured. What are, what are the processes I have from you? At AIA, our dream is to champion Australia to be the healthiest and best protected nation in the world. To achieve this, we are continuously innovating to develop and deliver customer-led life, health and well-being propositions that help people live healthier, longer, better lives. To find out more, visit aia.com.au. Andrew, can you explain a bit more about the research you did? What, what was the remit and, you know, what were any of the surprises that you might have encountered in the research? The big, uh, Emily knows about some of this research, so I apologise a little bit for it because uh, she'll be going over uh, ground. There's three things that, are, that I really wanted to understand was that um, superannuation funds have made a kind of couple of promises, whether they've tacitly made them a real they've made them to, to be people's partnership through their work, partner through their working life. There's been millions and spent in advertising to say to people, we're not just here to accumulate your money and, and apportion those fees, but we're actually going to be a partner from 
for you through through the process and you all know the advertising um that's gone on that this is this kind of piece of work that we think about all the time which is the authenticity in the business and the way in which they work are they who they are uh, are they say that say they are and do they do what they say they're going to do the really interesting outcome for this uh, julia is that um, the mid-sized funds and funds like Equip, and it's a little bit unfortunate that Emily's on this because I'm going to say positive things about her. Uh, the, the mid-sized funds tend to, um, to uh, mid-sized and small funds tend to outperform for their consumers, and the, the difference is so significant that the small fund effect is really noticeable. People have a much more intimate relationship with their fund when the fund is smaller because they just get better service, they get better communication. Partly that's because some people, some people sometimes self-describe through their fund. For example, someone who's in part of a Catholic fund but believes that you know that's something that Wachesley describes them. Partly because those funds just do a better job of servicing them, and, and partly because the large funds have really struggled to scope to to cope with members at scale. They're looking for simple solutions. They're looking for IT solutions. They're looking for digital relationships. Not not robo advice, but ro robotic relationships. When People are in crisis. They don't actually want that. But information, getting information really fast suits some people on a digital, a digital in, in placement, but for most people, they actually want to call someone and have them find the file, understand the information, tell them what the next steps are, form a relationship, allow them to call back and allow them to move through that process with an individual and, and, and make those things happen. For large funds, that's just not really possible. Um, because of the simple scale of the number of people that they're working on. I'm looking at the data um, uh, that we're looking at, uh, that we, we collected now, and I can really see clearly that there is a fundamental separation between small and large, and there's a very, there's a fundamental separation between um, people who, uh, who, who believe that the fund is interested and cares about them. So the equipped data is quite clear. 68% um, and 62% of people think that they're interested about them and care about them. For the smaller fund, for the smaller funds, that number is about the same. For the large funds, it collapses to 18 and 20%. So, so that's a really different outcome. Andrew, does that mean that people would actually leave those larger funds because they're not getting the personal um, attention? Is the, this is the really interesting bit, Julia. Up until now, there hasn't been an interesting because inertia has been per, a person's friend. The, 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 the performance has been good, so people haven't been interested and they've been prepared to put up with the put up with the, the poorer service because the performance has been relative, relatively good. Our data is showing that those that those larger funds are actually facing that risk now. The satisfa satisfaction in research has really started to fall. Larger funds, the people's ability to vision their future with the fund is said. So 72%, a year ago, 72% of the people who answered the survey, and these numbers are big samples, there's about 1,600 people in this cohort, uh, have said that, yes, I can see my future with this fund. We asked that last month and the number was 63 that's fallen 10%. So, there, so there's been a big shift in the number of people saying, I can see my future with this large fund. Um, the other part about it is that they're actually seeing the risk risks in the fund rise. So their confidence in their risk management has fallen from 82% to 70%. And their financial control and foot planning has continued to decline. 2020, it was 68%. 2021, 64%. It's now 57%. So they think that a superannuation fund has great risk controls. That's for the larger funds. That's inverted for the smaller funds. So those numbers are still pretty flat in the middle 60s. So the larger funds are starting to lose ground on that personalization, the promise delivering on what they're promising and being able to do that. So this is going to be a real challenge, right? Because if Equip then rightly starts to grow because they're providing a better service, how do you scale that intimacy? How do you build intimacy and trust at scale? Or do you simply say at some stage, Emily, well, we're full. I'm sorry about that. But we're, we're only selling this many funds this year because we can't provide the service that we want to provide if we get too big. I can't imagine that's a challenge that you're facing yet, but it's a conversation that you must be having inside your mind. What is the most effective science? And if, as Emily pointed out, the government does say that scale equals better outcomes for people, they've recently said in January this year that you had to be 50 billion to be to be good enough because they're modelling on what I think is a 0.45 world of cost, and they've kind of said that socially, then then, then you're going to get a perverse outcome. The service will fall. You won't be able to fund great service. You won't be able to be intimate at that size. And that's that's not what's going to happen. We might have to be like Canada where we split it, where we say eight, up to 3% of the savings goes into one of eight big funds and you can do what you like with your rest because 
what was really transparent in the Baltic states, wages are sticky inside superannuation. They tend to stay with the provider, but capital is very slippery. People are taking their capital out of Sweden and Denmark and moving it to other countries because they can do more with it in superannuation than they can in those homogenous systems. And the countries of choice are perverse. It's Romania because the systems are simple and open and it's only an hour away and they can understand what's going on. It's Italy. It used to be West Germany. It's not now. West Germany's really tightened up all those structures so the money's starting to swing around. So we have to think about that. The, the smaller, medium-sized balances will be sticky. The big balances will be slippery because people will be looking for better systems. SMSFs have been going really, growing really strongly. It's not because people think that they that um, it's a better system. It's just they can do more with their capital, and that's that's the challenge. And Emily's facing into this, and I'm, I'm not going to talk for her, so I'll shut up in a second. <laughs> but um, but she must be thinking about how can I do the best possible job for the people with the big balances and educate them that we've got the solutions which you do, and you've got the processes which you do to allow them to retain that relationship with, with you both after retirement and when when that moves on. I think, Andrew, to your point, um, we're looking very closely at the reasons why people move money out of the superannuation system or out of it, a fund like ours. A lot of it has to do with the perception or a desire for control. So having an understanding of what actually is happening behind the scenes, how our fund, how our investment team is monitoring, choosing mandates, picking um, investment strategies to apply to their super when our members have an active understanding of how we're managing their money and the value they're getting for the fees they pay, that desire for control, which is expressed in switching behaviour, starts to come down. We're also looking really closely at all the different types of optionality we offer to our members who might have slightly more sophisticated needs. So, you know, is our uh, pricing... Um, beneficial or detrimental to people who have high balances. And as a fund who has a higher proportion of higher balances, you bet we're looking at that. Uh, we're absolutely making sure that we're able to um, support and retain the people that are so important to um, both achieving and maintaining that scale. And for us, you know, we are trying to occupy that position in the market of the fund that people who are serious about their retirement um, stick with and choose in the future. Um, that is part of our growth strategy. We're looking at um, exactly the points you raised earlier about what is the appropriate level of scale for us. And, and right now our growth aspiration is to hit that $50 billion fund um, scale in the next few years, we are all about uh, inorganic growth. So unlike some of our peers in the market who are out there fighting for the man and woman on the street um, and taking a very retail um, focused lens on growth, we're saying that what we do best is tailored superannuation solutions for corporates and also for subscale funds. So the ability to maintain multiple brands in the market is one of our differentiators, um, as we're currently doing with Equipment and Catholic Super. And by doing that, we're able to give the members of those funds everything behind the curtain is um, streamlined and uh, harmonised to reduce costs and reduce friction and make sure that we can offer members the best possible um, fee profile and improve their retirement outcomes, but make sure that everything from their experience is aligned with the brand that they know and trust. So, Emily, can you talk us through the merger that you did with Catholic Super last year and how difficult it was to merge the two? What were the sensitivities with the cohorts and how did you get two very different memberships together from a communications point of view? Yeah, for sure. Look, I think um, anybody who's been exposed to any sort of merger activity in this industry would know that it is incredibly difficult. Um, there's uh, a lot of pressure to deliver on mergers and an expectation that mergers can be enacted in short order. The reality is that the operations of superannuation funds are, are incredibly complex. And for a fund like Equip Super, who has um, dozens and dozens of sub-plans to find benefit accumulation, it is not an easy task. Um, I think one thing we've been able to do really successfully is continue our legacy of um, really smooth successor fund transfers that's seen us grow up until this point and bring that way of working into the joint venture with Catholic Super. So I think firstly I'd say, um, you know, it wasn't our first rodeo. <laughs> the, the joint venture with Catholic Super was... Um, 
executed by a really tested team who knew what could look like and they knew the job to be done. I think um, there's a few factors that made it successful. And, of course, I'm going to start with the culture in both Catholic Super and Equip of um, empathy for our members and respect for our members. So on paper, you might look at those two funds and say they're quite different, and they are demographically, they're quite different. Um, but I think underneath the surface, you have a trustee office, a board who were really focused on making sure that the best financial interests of those member groups were being met, and um, groups of people who had that level of respect for the member. Um, and an intent to do the right thing. And although um, I do work and have worked in the for-profit um, and profit-to-member sides of the industry, Equip Super's culture of really being member-centric I think is quite unique. And I think that has led to the success of the joint venture with Catholic Super. And I think it's reason why we see such high levels of um, satisfaction and advocacy in our research programs. Um, the other thing I would say that's led to the success of this particular joint venture is the staged approach. So, I mean, obviously we had COVID in the mix there and that was the challenge for everyone when you're trying to unify two trustee offices while everyone's all of a sudden working from home. But there was a top-down approach to the joint venture um, that started with um, the initial announcement. Then there was a um, operating model alignment, so one board, one executive team, one trustee office, and then from there we started to harmonise products and look at how everything back of house could be aligned with each other. That is still a work in progress, uh, but what it's done is enable us to have a conversation with our, member, about our membership about what is changing, when it's changing, and really find that right balance between transparency and overwhelm. So maintaining the relationship we have with our members, maintaining the trust that they have in us while making sure that we're showing a sense of progress and also delivering on the benefits of a merger like this, which is to um, improve services, reduce costs and increase scale. And I'm imagining that you had to have very different methods of communication with the two different cohorts, like different genders, different ages, different wealth balances. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's it's a fascinating experience to understand how when you do deliver similar messages to very different demographic groups, how they will respond differently. At one point, we were rolling out a pretty unified engagement approach to our members as part of the JV, and we were getting feedback from Catholic super members that they were delighted with our proactivity in communicating, and equipped members were saying, you haven't told us anything. So we always take the opportunity to feedback uh, and understand what's landing and what needs to be tweaked and adjusted. And I think that experience really helped us understand that whenever we're designing engagement approaches, it does need to be brand-led. And the brand is obviously informed by the demographics of the people who um, have the affinity with that brand. So yes, with Catholic Super, for example, we might allocate a little bit more um, focus to having an outbound team support a campaign, for example, so that we can have a real person pick up the phone and explain to our Catholic Super members what this means and why they should be engaging with our messaging. Sorry, I think that's really important, uh, Emily, because one of the things that we observed um, at the start of the COVID crisis through this sort of small sample that we got out of South Australia was people inside the Catholic edu education system um, because of one particular message which was going out of people running to... Um, running to cash inside their superannuation balances almost three years ago now because one particular principal said that you know the superannuation is going to be badly affected so they do behave as a cohort and that would cost, cost them enormously because the share market will continue to run hot for another two years so making that communication is critical in those kind of networks yeah i think the other thing is that we're always watching and learning from what we're seeing members do whether that is um, calls coming in through our helpline, it might be the experience of our workplace education teams, it might be looking at the data showing transactions that are initiated by our members and being able to pinpoint um, which cohort within our member base needs the extra support and being agile about delivering, um, you know, whether it's a campaign or whether it is scrambling our education people to go out in that, if that example for a you know, that you mentioned, Andrew, we, we saw something like that playing out within our member base, 
uh, we, in pretty short order, be able to identify uh, what's happening, why it's happening and put a, a mitigating strategy in place. So, Emily, if you're about to um, merge with another fund, how easy would it be to do it again? Like once you've done it, you know, once or twice before, is it easier? Do you have to learn again or about the memberships? Yeah, I think, Julia, it's always easy to run your second marathon. So, yeah, it's absolutely, um, you know, we do have a growth strategy. So at some point in the future, we will be going through a similar program of activity. One of the things we do have is uh, all of the, the insights and knowledge we've gained from that experience. So we have a deeper understanding of our member base. We know our equipment members, we know our Catholic super members. Um, we would go through the same process of understanding the profile of the people that we're bringing in to our ecosystem. And in fact, that's one of the things we've designed and delivered over the last 12 to 18 months with BOC and Toyota Super Plans um, being successor fund transferred into Equip. We actually designed and delivered a human-centred design approach to that transition, which was we spent the time interviewing stakeholders on the client side so that we would know from them who their members are, what they think is important, what success looks like to all of our stakeholders, and then when an interviewed a subset of the incoming members. We also conducted a gap analysis, so it was really, really clear the value proposition that those members feel like they were getting with their legacy fund, the value proposition that we offer to them as the incumbent or the incoming, sorry, fund, and where those uh, gaps and pain points were and where we had an opportunity to really surprise and delight those members. And do you feel there needs to be a commonality to bring an, a new membership in or you can just do it with anyone? I think it really comes back to um, that organic growth supporting the best outcomes of the member base. So theoretically, yes, it can be anybody and within Equip Super, we're absolutely able to pivot to meet the needs of different groups of Australians, but it has to stack up in terms of the best interests of the existing member cohort. So uh, the strategy is very clear from the top down within our fund, which is that we're not pursuing growth at any cost. We're pursuing growth that um, makes sure that we are um, substantial and continuing to make sure that everything we do is in the best interest of our members. Thank you. Andrew, can you tell us how um, brand is important in these times? So one of the things which um, it, it, that we're facing into at the market is for so long the returns have done the heavy lifting of the relationship with the customer. As they start to wobble, the brand starts to become really important in making sure that people understand what the fund is trying to do, what they're trying to achieve and, and where they're trying to go. It's one of been one of the um, consternations of me working inside superannuation for 20 years is that people who are responsible for members understanding the relationship with the members and, and what the company stands for have been kind of pushed to the side or marginalised within within the companies. And at a time when they all of a sudden need them, they're, they're turning to them and saying, how are you going to help us now? Well, that, that's kind of interesting in the absence of that. So there are companies that have got have been able to establish really clear brands and really clear brand authenticity um, are going to do incredibly well as people find them easy to choose and easy to stay with. Where the companies have struggled to do that and struggled to get that horsepower on the ground, they're going to find it harder to keep to keep members. So the brand is going to have to do the lifting in terms of new relationships, existing relationships, and I think the and, and people who are working there. One of the things that we're seeing within, I'm not going to name names because it's, it's unfair and the sample sets are relatively small at this stage. There's a cognitive dissonance inside the employees who are working for some superannuation funds because under pressure, it becomes really transparent that they aren't who they say they are, that, that, that they're actually behaving with other motives in mind rather than what they say they're doing. So three things that are going to be really interesting the brand has to do. Maintain employees, make sure that people have an understanding of their purpose of where they're working, maintain the ability to attract new members as, as returns start to homogenise and wobble. They're going to, people are going to be choosing for other reasons than the simple the number and um, maintain existing members as people start to, A, approach retirement, facing to wobbling superannuation funds and the idea that they might be better off somewhere else. The brand has to do a lot of heavy lifting now in keeping those those things alive. So, Emily, you should be asking for more budget and, of course, spending more on research to, to do those things. And, Andrew, are things like um, ESG and sustainability and getting communication out there about what the fund is doing in those areas important to members? 
that's a really vexed question, um, uh, Julia. We're doing a lot of work on ESG globally, and it's starting to split and split really quickly. For a start, it means different things in different countries. Um, for, um, one of the things that's happened in Australia, for example, is that ESG is actually a remnant of the Quaker style of investing, and the investing others who do good and Sharia investing. So it doesn't actually do what it says in the tin. Having just come back, and I keep saying this, I sound like a one of those annoying friends who keeps talking about their trip to Italy. Um, in um, in Denmark and Sweden, they include nuclear and weapons in their ESG funds because they think nuclear power provides them with a re relief from um, being on everybody else's gas. And it's true, it does. And weapons uh, is... Um, is also something they should be investing in. When I pushed them on that and said weapons inside ESG, they were like, have you met the Russians? They're only just over there. I think it's important that we actually have a decent weapons industry here. Um, and it's like, well, that's that's a good point. And we're a little bit marginalised there. At the moment, we're doing two really interesting pieces of research. One is about the price utility of ESG. Can you charge more for an ESG fund? Um, and what are people prepared to pay? And we don't have the answers on that yet. We're just starting to do it. And the other one is, um, which is really interesting is is ESG what it promises to be if you read the leader in the economist this week they sort of tear it apart and make it really clear that it's not what it promises to be that for so many investment companies it's just a simple simply a way to rebadge something and charge more um, and but for other people it's something which is really really pure so we don't know yet we do know that the amount of money flowing into ESG options decelerated really quickly in the last quarter of last year and it hasn't started to accelerate again yet so we may be, there may be some evidence that it is actually a luxury purchase for people, that you get this kind of hierarchy of needs which is going on. That When everything's going well, then of course we can put some money into this, but as soon as there is some volatility in the market, then it be, behaves as a luxury purpose, perhaps not that there's not. There are two cohorts that do invest in ESG and always will. Highly educated people working in high-paying jobs inside um, elite industries, they will always invest in ESG. And then young people who believe they're doing the right thing, the great mass it's a choice and it becomes really quite interesting I build on that by saying that um, we've absolutely noticed that the people within our member base who are most interested in ESG and SRI are the younger um, groups of people I think the other very interesting thing is that we have um, sentiment coming back that um, offering an ESG option or a range of ESG options is highly desirable and members expect it. But will members pay a little bit more or take a slight reduction in performance because of that ethical layer on top of their investment strategy? The answer is no to that. So, you know, I think everybody loves the idea of it, but when it comes down to um, the trade-offs, as with most humans, when it comes to investing, we find it very challenging to deal with the concept of trading off performance or cost for something that we desire. Andrew, what did you find in your research regarding the types of tools that need to be used for good engagement? The one that shocked me most, and, and I'll be candid about this, is how much people still want to have phone-based and face-to-face -face communication. I actually thought that would be dying out by this part of the cycle. And remember, I've been working in this industry for um, 30 years and, and running Cordata for 20 years and been mapping that linearly for, for that time. And I thought that the phone would have started to die away by now, and it hasn't. People still are really wanting at times of uncertainty someone to talk to and someone else to take responsibility responsibility and navigate them through the processes. Yes, there are an increasing cohort of people who are highly digital, but it only takes them up to a point. Um, the evidence hasn't really changed when we first started doing this research in 2002, that people wanted to get to a certain point, then they wanted to talk to someone. Yeah, there's a group of people who go all the way through by themselves, but the vast bulk of people want to get to a point where they have to make a decision. And then for the very good firms, it's click to call. Now press this button here and it will take you through to someone different. And so they're happy to go through with calculators and so on that are provided on websites, but eventually they want to go to a person. Yeah. Um, in 2002, we did a bunch of work for National Australia Bank on people getting digital home loans and it wasn't really working until we... The, working with NAB, they built a small call centre and on every page uh, it said, are you stuck? Press here and we'll join up with one of our our, um, one of our, uh, our consultants. And our, we, we made the consultants we didn't make. We paid the people to have a 24-hour call line so it was very good for people doing it after work so they could do it and that, that increased their rate 
fundamentally um, and superannuation, I think we're going to see the same thing, that people will be increasingly working on their phones or their tablets and doing those things, and at the point where they reach confusion or decision, the, the, you need to have a button that says, are you confused? Or, you know, pops up, you've been on this page for a while, would you like to speak to somebody? And then you press the button and you're taken through to the call centre. I know you've invested a lot in that part of your business, Emily. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. We've, um, we're really cognizant of the fact that people buy from people and this is a, a customer um, purchasing relationship, even though it doesn't feel like that because our relationship with our customer is, um, you know, spans decades. But we do want to ensure that every time um, our members want to speak to a real person that we're making that easy for them. And this reminds me of one of my favourite anecdotes from my travels in the industry was that um, doing some research, testing a really whiz-bang robo-advice, um, you know, managed portfolio solution. One of the key insights from that research was that people wouldn't pay extra for an algorithm to tell them how to invest their super. They pay extra for a one-on-one -on -one meeting with someone from their super fund to sit down and have a conversation about what was happening inside their super. So, you know, willing to pay a fee of hundred hundreds of dollars per annum for the benefit of FaceTime with someone from their super fund, not personal financial advice, but just someone to kind of explain how it all works. So when you understand that dynamic and that people are looking for their funds to make sense of what's happening, um, it helps us designing our experience and engagement models to really prioritise those costly um, interpersonal points of contact um, because they are very, very expensive. It's incredibly expensive to resource and maintain an outbound call team or an education team, um, a financial planning team, but they are absolutely critical to maintaining relationships and also delivering that brand experience that we were talking about earlier, um, sitting down and, and talking with a person who represents the brand that you're engaging with is probably really the only tangible interaction someone's going to have with many superannuation funds because we don't have branches like banks do. We don't have those physical um, moments where we're present in somebody's life in the kind of way that you are able to execute on if you're looking into someone's eyeballs. Yeah. Well, thank you.